When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hi, everybody. I'm Billy Vera, and you're going to check me out on Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, what a way to start the new year for me. And this happened, I would say, by a happy accident on my end. 
and I'll explain that in a second. But this next guest is an American singer, songwriter, actor, author, music historian, and just a very well-rounded guy. Most people would know the classic song at this moment because of family ties if you're of a certain generation. But this guest is Mr. Billy Vera. Good morning. I know you're on the West Coast. How are you, sir? I'm great. How you doing, man? Can't complain. And I want to explain what I mean by the happy accident. And you can explain as much or as little as you'd like. So many of our audience members are fans of the Friday the 13th series. And a friend of the show is Melanie Kinnaman. And who's a dear friend of mine. Yes. So long story short, Melanie was posting about something because she's got something coming up in Atlanta, which I'm working on going to catch up with her at because she's just a doll. And so anyway, in this post, long story short, Mr. Veer commented on that post. And I'm sitting here thinking in my head going, yeah, just as a music guy and historian, everything else like that going, no way. That can't be the Billy Veer because you got a long history of credits from the 60s on and second generation, all that stuff. So sure enough, I click and because I'm nosy. Well, God damn that. Yeah, that is him. Long story short, reached out and here we are. So first question is, how'd you get connected with Melanie? Uh, Melanie came to uh, a nightclub many years ago I was playing at. I don't, I don't remember who. Oh, I think I know her. Her A girlfriend of hers was a um, comedian who opened up for us. And so she came along with uh, the comedian and, and we hit it off. Melanie and I, yeah. So it's just, I know the entertainment world is a small circle, but it was like, sometimes I forget how small it is. So it was cool to see you guys connected and that you actually have a friendship. I didn't think that that'd be the path I would take to get here, but here we are. Before I get in all the fun stuff, I do want to mention, because when we started talking about dates and times and all that stuff to do this. You have new music out called Stand By Me. So I want to insert that in here to when we publish the episode. But what before we play the song, what can you tell me about the song? Well, of course, you know, Stand By Me is one of the great, greatest records ever made. The original version by Benny King, who was a friend of mine and also of uh, Larry Chance of the Earls, who you, you may, if you're a music historian, you do know who the earls are mm-hmm. and um i'm a big doo-wop fan it's where for my age group but go ahead there you go well uh, last june 19 uh 2022 i was asked to come back to new york and do a show at my old high school archbishop stepanak in white plains new york and uh they had me do <laughs> an interview uh radio interview to promote the show about a month ahead of time. And the, the disc jockey was 
not that skilled an interviewer, let's say. And I said, my God, this guy is going to emcee the show. Oh, this could be drastic because, you know, my all my friends from high school days are going to be there and I'll be embarrassed. He'll say something stupid about me. And, you know, so I called, excuse me, I called up Larry. And I said, Larry, if you're not working that night, could you do me a huge favor and come and just introduce me? I said, of course. So, you know, I'll do that for you. So the night of the show, Larry comes out and he gives me this beautiful flowery introduction and, you know, made it look like I walked on water, you know, and, uh, and now the great Billy Vera, you know, and so I do my show and uh, at the end, I bring Larry out on stage and we do an impromptu version of Stand By Me and we get a standing ovation. So a couple of days Later, after I got back to Los Angeles, Larry called me up. He said, you know, I cut a track on Stand By Me a couple of years ago. He said, how would you feel about putting your voice on there with me? You know, because it went over so well at, at, the, at Stepanak. I said, well, Larry, you know, the world doesn't need another Stand By Me. I mean, Benny's record was one of the all-time greats. He said, no, no, just, just listen to the track. And, uh, and then decide. So I, of course I did. And I was incredibly surprised because rather than what most people do, which is just try to copy Benny's arrangement, Larry's version was sounded like Count Basie, you know, I mean, it was astounding version, uh, arrangement with big horn band and a great saxophone solo. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I, went over to my saxophone player's house and I put my voice on. I, I, I recorded about three or four takes and I sent them back to Larry. I said, Larry, use what you want. You know, it's your record. Uh, put me on there where you want me. So he did. And he did a marvelous version of it. And uh, the record came out. Larry put it out. And little, little do I, did I realize it suddenly starts getting played on all the jazz stations. And then it gets played on all these. Uh, you familiar with the uh, Carolina Beach music scene? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, all those stations are playing it, and now it's in the it's in the top ten down there. And uh, here we are. A couple. I'm 78, and Larry's 82, and a couple of old geezers. We we got a record that's people are loving and buying and uh, and and making some noise. So stranger things have happened, huh? Exactly. And before I go ahead and insert the song here, thinking about it and Stand By Me, like you said, is one of those tracks that is so well received and has been duplicated, I guess the best word is, or covered many times over the years and stuff. So obviously you expressed your concerns in terms of, do I really want to add something to this and whatnot? to Larry's version of things. And I think of things like, say, on Broadway, then you can tell me goodbye. You know, there's certain tracks throughout history that have many covers and stuff. Would the number one question come to you going, what can I add to this? Or was it after you heard it, okay, this is what I can add to this particular version? Well, once I heard the track, you know, and it was a radically different 
it's a total reimagining of of the song, which is what a good cover should do. I mean, I remember when Benny's record was out, Cassius Clay did a version that was just absolutely, it's so bad, it's funny, you know? As we know, he was a uh, great singer, Cassius Clay. Yeah, the great singer, Cassius Clay. (laughs) This is before he became Muhammad Ali. But uh, So, you know, I didn't want to fall into that category and get lost. Why waste your time? Because a lot of people have recorded my song at this moment (laughs) and not always uh, in the best of taste. You know, people tend to, because it's an emotional song, people tend to oversing it, get a little over melodramatic with it. And, uh, but when somebody just lets the song do the work for them, uh, that's, that's when they do a good job. You know, uh, uh, Michael Buble is a good example. He did a, a very good job of it. Jimmy Fallon actually nailed it pretty well on, the sh- on his show didn't record it but it you can see it on youtube if you want um rita coolidge did a nice job of it of at this moment uh you know because she doesn't I, she doesn't have the vocal equipment to go overboard you know like a lot of singers try to show off how many notes they can sing in in one word and uh at any rate i i stray from stand by me but uh yeah, I mean, the, the, the arrangement that I heard when Larry sent it, uh, that dictated to me my approach. You know, I'm, I'm going to sing it from my soul, from my, my heart. Just, and, and, I, and I listened to what Larry was doing, and he was singing it from his soul. And since we were of, you know, the same generation, basically, we came up and you know, in New York and Bronx, Westchester, Harlem. Uh, and so Larry and I had a lot of the same influences. We, we, uh, some of our, our heroes are the same. We, for example, we both love Arthur Prysock. Neither of us tries to sing like Arthur Prysock, but we- Who we, could though? Who, who could? Billy Eckstein, you know? Oh. But, but uh, you know, but- I, I, I love Arthur Prysock, who, who, by the way, recorded at this moment, which was a big thrill for me, even though it was late in his life and he didn't have the, the chops that he once had. But, you know, I got to meet one of my heroes, you know, so it's always a great thing. So I'm going to insert the song right here. Okay. When the night has come Oh, and the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand by me and darling, darling, stand by me I want you to stand by me Why don't you stand by me? Come on and stand by me And if the sky we look 
like that take of this song but i'm curious to know we want to go or i should say before i move forward to go backward the song is available apple spotify all that fun stuff that people get their music nowadays because you uh said it tongue-in-cheek but there's truth to it when you sent the track over to me in that people don't buy records anymore or CDs or anything like that. So I guess my next question would be, since you've been involved with the music business from the 60s on in different avenues and facets and stuff, what has been the biggest surprise to you technology-wise as far as putting out your products? Oh, boy. I don't even know where to, how to answer that. Because um, I'm I'm... I'm the opposite of a tech guy. You know, I, I like to record songs with all the musicians together in the same room, which nobody does anymore. My, my most recent album uh, was called Timeless. And I, I had everybody in there, at least the rhythm section in there together. You know, and, we, and you get a certain feeling when everybody's playing off each other and inspiring <laughs> each other at the same time. You know, rather than, you know, the bass player comes in three months later and adds his part. You know, I mean, there's something sterile about that to me. 
that, that, that's missing uh, in, in a lot of modern music. Uh, it doesn't seem to stop things from making millions of dollars, but but it, 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 it's, it's missing aesthetically, you know? Uh, so I, I don't know when, when things change, you, you, you kind of go with it. You, you, if, if, if things don't change necessarily for the better, uh, here's an example, Michael Kuskuna, uh, the great jazz producer and one of my best friends. And I were asked to produce Lou Rawls in 1989. And uh, when, when Blue Note Records signed him. And that was at the time when people were recording digitally. So Michael, who knows a thousand times more about tech than I do, he said, you know, there, there's a coldness to digital recording. and They haven't gotten it down yet. Uh, he, said, he said, but he had an idea. He said, well, let's record onto tape but we'll, we'll record at twice the speed uh, as normal. And that, that will retain the warmth because Lou was a very warm singer. And the musicians we had, Richard T and Cornell Dupree and these wonderful musicians were all warm players. And so, so when, he, when Michael, uh, switched it over to, to the digital domain for CDs, our record was, was warmer sounding than most digital records of that time. You know, I, I, I think they've, they've improved it or maybe just my ears have gotten bad over the years, I don't know. But I think that was, that was a, an adjustment that people had to make if they wanted to keep the, the warmth, you know? And of course, where do people listen now? They listen on, they listen on this, you know? <laughs> and so how much, how much warmth are you gonna hear on that? You know? This is true. But obviously your band that you've been with for what, 20 years, 30 years at this 40, point? The Beaters. 1979. Oh, yeah. yeah. And obviously you've, touched on a little bit about the feeling of that band and your influences. You know, there's some jazz, there's this, there's that. There's definitely more sophistication, I would say, with you guys, but you still keep it rock and roll. How is that possible? Well, I, being my, the age I am, I was born in 1944. So I was probably of the the first generation of rock and roll fans. So Chuck Berry and little Richard, things like that. Yeah. Fats Domino was the first record I ever bought Blueberry Hill. I bought the same day I bought honky tonk. So that, that was, that shows you where I, I started from. Then of course, being a New York boy, you know, we idolized Frankie Lyman and the teenagers and, and uh, Willie Winfield of the harp tones and, uh, all of whom I later got to work with, you know, and be, and befriend. Uh, so that that's rock and roll is in my heart. But my mother was a singer and she was on the Perry Como show and, and the Ray Charles singers on the Perry Como show and on Como's records. So she had pretty, you know, uh, good taste. She'd bring home Frank Sinatra, you know, songs for young lovers, songs for swinging lovers. 
She'd bring home Arthur Breisach. She'd bring home Nancy Wilson. She'd bring home Duke Ellington, Nat Cole. So I was hearing that music at the same time uh, and, and, and loved it just as much. Although when I, want, when I wanted to be a singer, you know, I, I saw Chuck Berry and I wanted to be him, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I got, uh, I saved up my little $35 lawn mowing money and went to Sears and bought a guitar you know, plugged it into my mom's tape recorder because I didn't have enough money to buy an amp. And, uh, and, and I went, went on from there, you know. Well, how would you say, because you mentioned there about being, growing up in the first generation of rock and roll, where, and it's funny, it reminded me, because I just recently watched the Elvis movie, because I've always been a, Big fan of Elvis from the time I was yay high. You know, the one with Tom Hanks and stuff. And that generation of, you know, like I said, of Chuck Berry and you lead the fast domino, Little Richard, and just on and on and on. Parents were used to big band and, you know, a different type of music. And I think you come from a different element because your dad was a announcer for NBC. You just mentioned mom's history working with Perry Como and such. And, but how were your parents with some of these early musical influences for you? Cause it was a mixture, obviously it wasn't just rock and roll. It wasn't just this. It wasn't big band. There was definitely a mixture with what you had. Well, in top 40 radio at the time uh, I was growing up, there was a it wasn't narrow cast like it is today you know like i mean it's down to the point where you have a sinatra channel on sirius you know what i mean so but then you know you one one minute you're listening to the coasters the next minute you're listening to percy faith's theme from summer place you know i, I mean it, it's if you didn't like it you press the button in your parents car and and you went to the next station but um, you know, we, we were exposed to a wide variety of music then, and I, and I think it was healthier in, in the sense that, uh, that, that, that being exposed to, to a wider variety of music it gave you choices, choices of where you wanted to go, what you liked best, and what your direction would become. You know, and, and uh, you know, when my mother brought home uh, Duke Ellington's Uptown album and that that version from 1951 of Duke doing Take the A-Train with Betty Rocher's bebop vocal and that crazy solo, saxophone solo by, by Paul Gonzalez, I mean, it just blew my brains out, man. I listened to it. And, you know, the irony is that my, my youngest child, my son, Charlie, who's now 34, he picked me up in the car, in his car the other day, and on his, on his uh, thing that he plays music on was, was that record. And he starts singing along with the horn parts, you know, of Duke Ellington. And uh, I said, boy, I, to myself, I, I raised him right, you know. If anything, I did something right when 
Yeah. My kid has good musical choices. You bet. And before we get in the, at this moment and all, and we talk to up and stuff, back in the day, you served as a conductor for a bunch of acts, Ronnie Spector and uh, Shirelles and stuff. But probably one of my favorites that I had read that you were involved with was a 72 reunion of Dion and the Belmonts, who were probably one of my favorite groups of that style of music. So what was it like working with Dion and the Belmonts? Well, you know, these fellows did a, a documentary on me called Harlem to Hollywood, uh, named after my memoir of the same title. And we went to Dion and asked him if he'd speak a few words. Actually, I asked him to speak a few words for the back flap of my book. And by the time he got around to it, <laughs> the book was already off to the publisher. But we used what he wrote, which was beautiful. We used it at the beginning of the movie. And in it, Dion says, and, and this is a, a paraphrase of what he said, not an exact quote, but he said, he said, when I first started doing well with Runaround Sue and The Wanderer, he said, I, I bought a house for my parents up in White Plains, New York. And my sisters used to go to this nightclub, the 1220 Club, to see this guy, Billy Vera. And they came home, they said, D, you got to hear this guy, Billy Vera. He's the real thing, man. So I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one, one Saturday night, I went down and I saw Billy Vera. And indeed, he was and is the real thing. And we've been friends ever since. So I had played with Dion uh, on some shows. And when Richard Nader asked him and asked the Belmont separately if they would consent to do a show together, a comeback show. They said, yeah, we'll do it, but we don't like your band. We'll, we'll do it only if you hire Billy Vera and his band to back us up. So that's how that happened. Now, I will never forget that night when, when Richard Nader announced, I asked Dion, I asked the Belmonts, they said yes. Boom. Well, the audience reaction, you know, because Dion DiMucci is, he's Sinatra in New York to that generation. You know, I mean, people idolize him and right, rightly so. I never heard such an ovation in my entire life. People were stomping their feet before they sang a note. You know, it was it was scary because I, th I thought the floor was going to fall in, you know, in Madison Square Garden. It was, and, and you know what? The album is still in print after all these years. Amazing. And the other thing, and this will lead into at this moment and such, but I was watching some old interviews you did with, because I am 38, and I remember, I'm old enough to remember the end of Johnny Carson and into Jay Leno for The Tonight Show. But I had seen some stuff he did on Johnny. And two things that stood out for that is I had heard 
it was told to you through social media and such that you were Johnny's favorite singer behind Tony Bennett, which is another one, rightfully so, he's up there. And you also told a story on one of the interviews being that your mom would call radio stations (laughs) and try to promote Hey, can you play this song? Can you play this record? Yada yada yada. So, obviously, the Tonight Show has always had a staple on NBC and such. What was it like for you to be a reoccurring guest on there? Well, it was it was an honor. Uh, it, you see, my agent Danny Robinson, who, by the way is retiring. I hate to, I can't even believe that he's younger than me. Uh, his father, Bud Robinson managed Doc Severinsen for 20 years. So Danny was sort of hooked into the tonight show. So the, the first time that, that they had me on there, the record was starting to go up the charts and, uh, and I, I don't know whether it was Danny, whether it was his father, I, I don't know, but they got me on the show. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't want to pay for the beaters. Uh, so I, I sang this song with Doc's band and it went over well. And uh, this was before it hit number one. And uh, would this have been during the initial run when it was only in the seventies or closer to when it hit number one? It, it hit number one in January of 87. Okay. So the first time I was on the show would have had to have been uh, probably December 86. Okay. Because I, because we did the new, we did their new New Year's Eve show with the beaters. And uh, that was New Year's Eve going into 87. And that, that was pretty cool. Very cool because that night we had a gig. We taped the show in the afternoon, you know, brought in the new year on tape. And that night we had a gig at our usual club, our, our club called At My Place. And the owner was a great guy. What he did was he brought, he rented a, a huge TV so that our fans could see us on Carson at midnight on television. And it was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment, you know, and, and about I guess about three weeks later, because it was my mother's birthday, January 24th, that the record reached number one on the Billboard and Cashbox charts. And as you said, my, my mother, as the record was going, <laughs> starting to get played, she, she, you know, she, was, she had terminal cancer at the time. And, but she, she was shameless. She'd call out these, these awful you know, morning disc jockeys who are just a bunch of wise guys. And she, she understood that they were making fun of this old lady, you know, trying to get her son's record played, but they, but she went along with it like a, like a trooper, like the trooper that she was. And, uh, and you know what, you, you, you couldn't stop that record. You know, it, it just, it, it was one of those things that it appealed to across the board, every demographic group, you can imagine, you know, young, old, white, black, country, rhythm and blues, pop, you know, uh, we had 65-year-old couples making it their song. We had high, junior high school kids making it their prom song. It, it just, 
for some reason it it struck a nerve in in just about everyone that had any kind of a heart in them and you know it's funny and again this might shock people that i mention this as we start to talk about the song but it has this feel to it for me and this might show my either useless amount of music knowledge or however people want to take it but it has this feel of like say bob wills where it has a little bit of steel with the horns uh, a little bit of texas swing music mix of jazz just there's a lot of different elements the great sax uh solo there's a lot of elements there you nailed so, it you nailed it brother thank you I sir mean, because i was li- i had been listening to a lot of bob wills at the time we started the beaters there you go so it was bob and wills I, meets Ray Charles, basically yeah i had no idea that you were listening to him at the time but that's the feeling i got with that also a little Hank Williams because of that Texas swing and stuff, but that's here and there. But how was it for you that initially hit the charts at 79 and 81 and credit it to you and the beaters? But then a couple of years later, their producer from Family Tie says, hey, we liked the song when he saw it live and we'd like to use this in our tv show which was hot at the time it was the number two show in the country after cosby at that time well yeah i mean what had happened was we 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 had been on a record company called alpha records out of, out of japan uh which had a, a los angeles office and um we were the first act on the label so we got the big push they sent us to Tokyo. We won the gold prize over there, singing at this moment, by the way. And uh, uh, the first record out, you know, they like to put out a, a up-tempo song first. So we had a, a chart record called I Can Take Care of Myself. Uh, went into the, into the top 30s. And then, but they really believed in at this moment. So they put that out second. Uh, but the, the head of promotion got into a fight with the boss of the company and quit. So there was nobody to promote the record. And shortly after that, the Japanese pulled the plug on the, on the American version of the label and we were without a record deal. Well, by that time I was, I don't know, 36 years old and too old to be considered a rock and roll star. So it was difficult to get another record company interested and nobody was. So I began to eke out a living uh, as an actor, you know, playing Thug of the Week or whatever. Uh, and that, that came about through my, my original songwriting mentor was a fellow named Chip Taylor, who wrote Wild Thing, Angela Moore, another Westchester boy. And, and uh, you know, we wrote my, my early... 60s hits uh storybook children and things like that together and and then uh when i first came to california we were playing at the troop the famous troubadour every monday night at midnight 
And one night, Chip's brother, John Voigt, came in with his acting coach, David Proval, who you'll remember from The Sopranos and from Mean Streets. Uh, and John came backstage and because uh, I had known him from the 60s, you know, with Chip. He said, you know, Billy, he said, he said I, I, I haven't seen you on stage in years. He said, but he said, you're doing something up there, man, that I, I've never seen a singer do. I said, what, what's that? John? You know, John can be very intense. And he said, uh, he said, he said, most singers get up there and, and they sing at an audience, you know, hello, L.A., great to see you, all that jive. He said, you don't do that. He said, you, you come from a very organic, very honest place. Uh, and you're working from the inside out rather than working from the outside. That's actor talk. You know, I didn't know what he was talking about pretty much. He said, you need to come to David's class. He said, he said, you could be a great actor. I said, oh, John, I'm not look, good looking enough to be an actor, number one. I said, and I have no interest in acting. But he said, he said, do me a favor, come, come to the class. So I went and, and, and as it turned out, the first night I was there, there were these two fellows on stage, one named Chris Mulkey and another named Rocky Estreveria, who became Stephen Bauer, who, if you watch Ray Donovan, uh, he and John are, are on Ray Donovan, you know, uh, Rocky slash Steve plays the uh, Israeli guy who's Ray Donovan's right-hand man. Anyway, I said, I said, these guys are doing something real. I said, acting is not, you know, BS like I thought it was. It's, it, you, it can be an art form in itself. So I, I stayed, you know, I didn't, I, I, was, I was still too uh, frightened to get up on stage and try anything because I didn't know what they were doing. But little by little, I, I got it or I began to get it. And, uh, you know, after a year or two, people started asking me to be in plays and, and then be on, you know, play cop number three or something at a, on a TV show. And then, and, and then I started doing movies and stuff. And so I could, I could barely make the living during those slow years, those five years between when At This Moment first came out and when I got the golden phone call from Family Ties. And, um, you know, I was able to apply that also to my singing work because way back, even in New York, I was, it, it had occurred to me at one point that, you know, there's, there's got to be more to it than just, you know, hey, everybody, let's dance, you know, whatever. And I said, what if, what if, what if I'm singing a, a, a comical song, like a coaster song, you know, Charlie Brown or Yakety Yak or something, and my best friend dies this afternoon? What is... As an artist, what's my obligation? Is my obligation, of course, is to be funny because it's a funny song. That's what the words tell you, the, the lyrics of the song tell you. But but do I ignore my tragedy? And and if 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 I have an obligation to to acknowledge that, how do I do that and still be funny? 
And would the crashing together of those two things in, in an interior way create something larger and more important than just going through the comedy routine? Which, by the way, I got all my comic timing from the coasters. I played with them dozens of times. You know, and they were really good friends of mine. And I watched every move they made, you know. And uh, so I was working on that already. But then going to David's class gave me the tools to, to, to know how to, to do that. Uh, because if you're handed a script, you know, you have an obligation to that script to be that character, you know, whether I'm playing a, a, a school teacher or, a, or an axe murderer, you know, I got to be that guy. Uh, and I got to feel what that guy feels. And it's the same with a song. You know, people say, well, how can you sing at this moment 5,000 times over the last 30 years, 40 years and still keep it real? Well, that's how you do it. You know, I, for the first few years, you, I can go back to the girl that was the inspiration for the song. But that dries up after a while. So you, you, you've got to find something new to put you in that same place uh, where because that's what you, your, your obligation really is to connect with your audience and to make them feel what the song is supposed to feel. And and then if you want to really take that up to the next step of performance art uh, to make them feel who you, who you are, not just what you're feeling in that particular piece of material. I mean, I, I hope this isn't too inside no. baseball for your audience. No, you're fine. Uh, they tend that, to like that. Oh, good. Well, you must have a very hip audience. But the one thing as you were answering that, flashed in my head when you were talking about when you were having your conversations with John Voigt and all. And the thing that was flashing in my head that as you were saying that was something you said in the beginning of this conversation. And when we were talking about stand by me and singing from your soul, if that makes sense. And trying sure. to express, yeah, you know, that was the thing that flashed in my head when you were saying it. It's like, ah, it brings everything full circle for me. To simplify, to simplify, sing it like you mean it. Stand up there, and whether it's acting or singing, say it, singing, sing it like you mean it, like your life depends on it. There was a quote by the late Greek. Glenn Fry from the Eagles, who uh, I'm a huge fan of the Eagles. Glad I got to see him twice and such. But he said about that, because you said about singing the song so many times over the years and such. He goes, I have to remember, there might be times that I'm annoyed that I have to do Hotel California, do this, do that, whatever the case is. But I have to remember that there are probably people in that audience that came to see us perform these songs, or in your case, at this moment. And I have to put the same effort into tonight 
as I've done the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is. Because our fan base, for whatever records, whether it's our stuff from the 60s, in your case, 70s, at this moment, whatever the case is, they expect have a certain expectation. So, And I thought that hit on pretty good. Well, you know, it's it's the same thing that Jackie Wilson told me. Jackie was a friend of mine. I, I, I played with him. Uh, my first wife's sister was his girlfriend for a while. So we were, we were pretty close. And the first time I played the Apollo Theater uh, in 1968, he came to visit backstage and he said, and he gave me a great piece of advice. He said, always, always do your, your hit, <laughs> you know, no matter how tired you get of it. He said, because that's the only reason they're paying their little $2 to come and see you. That's the only yeah. reason, you know, and, uh, and it's true. You know, I mean, the great Lester Young, saxophone player who who was the most inventive of saxophone players of his era he could he could play a song eight thousand different ways you know and and be creative but once he had a hit with a certain song like jumping with symphony sid or whatever they wanted to hear that solo and i'm sure it it, it annoyed a creative guy like him but he knew he had to do it. He's a professional. You, you must remember you are a professional. All these, all this highfalutin talk about art means nothing if you're not a professional. And like you said, pe- like Jackie told you, people are coming to spend their money to see a certain thing, whether it's a musician, a movie, a whatever it is that fan base is coming to spend their money to see and have certain expectations. Yeah. And I want to wrap here because I just heard this this morning and from another interview you did. And I thought it was great because you mentioned him earlier, but you got a good secondhand story of a guy who lived or was initially from between us, because I'm in Philly, you're a New York guy, Frank Sinatra, a Newark, New Jersey guy. There was a good story you heard that he told somebody about at this moment. We're seeing a video version on VHS at the time. Would you mind repeating that story? Sure. Um, I guess it was around 1986. Seven, maybe 88, because the, the record was still fairly hot, so it had to be 87. I was asked to do uh, a show at the, the beautiful Wiltern Theater, which is this just gorgeous, gorgeous Art Deco building on the corner of Wilshire Boulevard. Beautiful old theater. And it was, it was a salute to songwriters. So there was... Oh, my goodness. I can't remember who Chris Christopherson, a lot of great songwriters, each singing a song. And so I I was asked to sing at this moment. 
and, and, and had to use a house band. And so I had a rehearsal with them. Boom, everything was fine. And the come, come the moment of the show, the conductor counted at this moment off too slow. And I had to make a split, this split second decision. Do I stop him and count it off at the correct tempo? Or do I go with this slower tempo and see where it takes me emotionally? Because, you know, sometimes magic can come from those little surprises. And, uh, and so in that split second, I chose to do that. And the result was it did take me to a, a, a real Billy Holiday place emotionally, you know, and uh, it resulted in this standing ovation. People went nuts. So unbeknownst to me, the, the show was being taped. So about 20 years later on Facebook, this woman hits me up or as they say, friends me. And she said, you know, I, I used to be uh, one of Frank Sinatra's girlfriends or his girlfriend, she put it. And, uh, and she said, one night when he came over to see me, I played him the tape of you singing your song and he made me play it again and again and again and again, five times. And he said, who is this kid? He said, why isn't he the biggest star in the world? This is one of the greatest vocal performances, stage performances I've ever seen in my life. Who, why is he not a star, this kid? And she, and she said, ever after that, every time he came to visit her, he made her play the tape. And I, you know, I was like, whoa, why, why didn't I get to hear him say that to me? So I could have met him maybe. You know, because he was God as a singer, you know, because uh, listening to songs for swinging lovers and songs for young lovers as a kid, I used to sing along with those albums back in my little room back there. And and I, I guess what I got from him, you know, obviously I was singing rock and roll and doo-wop and whatever. But, you know, you get something from the greats without trying to copy them. If, if, you're, if you're an amateur, you'll copy, try to copy that person. And, and if, if you're professional, I keep bringing that word up, you will try to find something that you relate to in that person and use that. And in his case, it was... I. And I'm not even sure I knew it uh, would, would be the phrasing, his phrasing. So everybody always talked about Sinatra's phrasing. Well, after I had my first couple of hits with Judy Clay on Atlantic Records in 1968, uh, Atlantic Records gave me a solo session. And Jerry Wexler, the boss there, found a song for me called With Pen in Hand, uh, which I did not write. Uh, and it was a great song. And so I'm in the studio and my manager was dear friends with Jilly Rizzo, who was Sinatra's best friend and owner of a place called Jilly's in, in Midtown Manhattan. 
And Julie said, he said, Jesus, who's this kid? He said, he, he says, he's the closest. When it comes to phrasing, only Frank can outphrase this kid. So I, I got to meet Julie and befriend him somewhat. So 20 years later, when At This Moment was out, <laughs> I get a gig to play in Palm Springs. By that time, both Sinatra and Jilly were living in Palm Springs. So I'm in my dressing room and there's a knock at the door. And then this guy is like one of those crooked nose guys. Hey, uh, he's standing in the doorway with like a couple of dozen roses in his arm. <laughs> this big, tough guy. He says, hey, uh, he said, Jilly says to tell you that he's homesick in bed and he can't come to see you sing. But he said to tell you, he still loves you. And Frank's the only one that can out sing you. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, I thank you, sir. You know, Mr. Mr. Gangster, whatever your name is, you know. And, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> and it was allegedly, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, who knows if he was a gangster, but he was one of those kind of guys that, that Sinatra yeah. liked to I'm, surround mm-hmm. himself with, you know. Uh, so, so yeah. So uh, apparently, I, I, I for for a while, I, I would, I, I dreamed about, man, if only Frank had sung at this moment. But then I realized, I said, I don't think he would have would have sung it because. He was a stickler for grammar. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in there, because you just don't love me no more. And of course, there's no way it would lose the whole meaning if, if you said, because you just don't love me anymore, which is correct grammar, you know. And uh, I don't even think Frank could have made that work. You know? And it just seems <laughs> with the tone of singing it and all, it'd be, it would change the dynamic. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, he had great taste in the great American songbook, Mm -hmm. but he still sometimes he wasn't perfect. Who is? As Bad Bad Leroy Brown is a great example. Or or, uh, what was the other one? Everybody's Twisting. You remember when Frank did that one? (laughs) Oh, boy. It wasn't perfect. Even even the gods aren't perfect, you know? No. (laughs) Well... I'm going to have links for Stand By Me and your website and all that stuff. Great. Sir, yes. I appreciate the time. Happy New Year. I know we're a weekend or so. I appreciate the conversation with you. There's so much more I could talk to you about, but we'll have to figure that out at some point. Billy well, Vera, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, you, you, you did, you, you're a very good interviewer. I think I'm always grateful when I come across somebody like you. Appreciate it. What did you think I would do at this moment when you're standing before me with tears in your eyes trying to tell me that you found you another you just don't love me no more 
Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey you guys, this is Allie Pauline and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. <laughs> 